When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Censorship is about the state acting to silence you. And for all of this bloviating about, you know, First Amendment being silencing people from calling you ethnic names or slurs, you you actually have a president who wants to, who said that he wants to deprive the citizenship of Colin Kaepernick. He says he thinks that he should be tried for treason and have his citizenship taken away. This is Patricia Williams. She teaches law at Columbia University and is the author of The Alchemy of Race and Rights, A Diary of a Law Professor. Censorship is a problem in America, but as Patricia Williams identifies it, it's a problem when the state exercises that right. The First Amendment, free speech, hate speech, students protesting, athletes protesting, how do we make sense of all of that? Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Welcome, I'm so excited to be here with Professor Patricia Williams. First of all, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. It's my pleasure. So Professor Williams is a professor at Columbia School of Law, and you're the author of many books and many articles under the Joan of Arc byline, as you yourself say, the diary of a mad law professor. I want to say, first of all, that the alchemy of race and rights, diary of a law professor, I think you published in 91 or 92. That was the year I graduated from college. And it was a completely transformative book. And really, (laughs) sort of really was a book. I, I don't know why I picked it up. Possibly Barbara Johnson recommended it. I don't know. I... Oh, yeah. She was certainly an inspiration. She was the person who actually read one of my essays and told me to make this into a book. She was very, very instrumental in bringing that to publication. Oh, so that's nice, actually. And she was, you know, I took a class with Barbara Johnson in college called Black Women Writers with Uh some 400 students. And it was the first iteration of this class she taught. And it was an incredibly powerful, important class, I think. And at that time in the early 90s, I don't think it was a completely canonical thing to teach a course on black women writers to a sort of cross-section of undergraduates in an American college. So she really did something very innovative then. And she was just, remarkable. Yeah. And I wanted yeah. to say about alchemy of race and rights, I think the, one of the, the things that I took from this book was that the language of neutrality, the language of objectivity, the way we frame problems, the way we in kind of mainstream sort of elite institutions are taught to think is to arrive at abstractions. And then your book showed that this, these abstractions often hide, obscure, or deliberately make us forget the humanity of the people and the subjects 
sort of who are supposed to be governed or helped, aided by the law. And this kind of work on undoing and dismantling some of the stereotypes and the figures we work with, you've done for the last 30 years or so. And why I wanted to talk to you on the podcast is because so many of the things you've talked about, affirmative action, controversies over blackface, um, campus student protests, the kind of I2M Harvard campaign, these things seem to be recurring. And right now we're living through another major iteration of campus protests over racial identity, over admissions, over affirmative action. So I'm kind of curious how you see this sort of your work. You've been trying to deal with this and bring attention to these issues. And then we're living through another iteration. And I wonder whether this one is different from previous ones. Uh, yes, it does feel different to me because while campus politics and campus confrontations are their own form of abstraction to some degree in that I suppose from one point of view you could say that it is literally academic or figuratively academic, but it is a kind of practice for the larger world frequently. And it feels like the culture wars have certainly metastasized into the heart of our politics. Now, I did want to go back and say something about what about how you characterize alchemy of race and rights is about undoing abstractions and the neutrality of law, but it was also a reflection on the situatedness of particular subjects with relation to the law. And I am not somebody who thinks that neutrality is something I want to do away with for any and all purposes. The question of a particular the consideration of one's humanity should not be framed as something in tension with the notion of equality. My desire to get past the formalities of law is not the same as wanting to do away with the 14th Amendment, for example, or the due process provisions. <laughs> so just to be very certain but about that, where these, you know, where these conversations direct us. Very important. I really like that you actually sort of correct me in this, that sort of saying that neutrality serves an important critical purpose, actually, especially when you bring up 14th Amendment, when things are defined as equality before the law, that should be unambiguous, not just settled law, but kind of beyond interrogation in a way. So certain, so you're saying, I'm not throwing out the idea of objectivity or neutrality. I just want to show where it serves to obscure something or how we can be more precise. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you just brought up the 14th Amendment. I mean, it's in the news right now, issues of citizenship, birthright citizenships. So what is happening? In, and as you said, these cultural debates have metastasized and become part of our political culture right now. When people are taking apart language in the wrong way, let's say, when they're attacking things that should be, I don't know what to say, should they be self-evident? They should be um, more what the law calls settled law or... Or it ought to be the most obvious kinds of lessons of history that ought to be recognizable from George Orwell, you know, that we are inverting meanings all the time, that our political discourse has been corrupted in a way that words are being used to signify, to undo, to empty, to, to make it very hard to have anything but, not just hyperbole, but a kind of empty set of references that in a way that enables a certain kind of totalitarianism. And that's why I find Orwell so interesting at this moment. The lessons, particularly of Animal Farm, <laughs> right. ought to be very much with us. The lessons of Hakobo Timmerman's book, Prisoner Without a Name, Cell Without a Number, 
in that book, he talked about being detained as a journalist, as a Jew in Argentina, and he described the way the uses of so-called humor, the way in which anti-Semitism, racism, authoritarianism was conveyed uh, through public displays of mockery, which were experienced by certain people or brushed off or diminished through the uses of humor. You know, I, I think that we need to be going back to some of the literature the last 70 years to recall that when you bestialize people, when you talk about them as parasites, I mean, why are we actually having to reacquaint ourselves with the consequences of talking about both external and internal bestialized, parasitized, criminalized, uh, subhuman and therefore subcitizens. I'm deeply distressed by this direction because I think that, as Samantha Power has written, these are frequently the elements of a way of marking people for acts of cruelty and, and death. Right. right. So to go back to this, this is really important. What happens when someone is referred to in this language, in this book, Prisoner Without a Name, Cell Without a Number, the effects of language used about somebody? And I think a lot of your work is sort of to really examine what effects are there. Then you just said, is there a way to counter this, to undo this? But as you're saying, there's a kind of massive effort right now on the administration's part to dehumanize people, first linguistically to put them in categories that place them beyond empathy or beyond a kind of... And it, in two of your books, you have encounters with people who sort of say, oh, I have to struggle to rehumanize seeing the homeless or different groups of people. And you kind of take that into it as a, let's say in a, in a benign way, as a teachable moment to say, what is happening here for someone to have to make this effort to recognize the humanity? Yeah. yeah. So, so how can language, in some sense, it's interesting you're referring to works of literature or sort of autobiography, can we take this back or what are we doing at this moment? How do we counter this kind of tendency? Because it's not just to market and say this is wrong. Yeah, I don't know how to do this easily. I mean, I think it's so contagious and so easy on the one level and it's so dependent upon a lack of education or a lack of association. I don't mean just, you know, lack of degree education. I mean the inability to make historical connection, to make a connection over time. I am a tremendous fan, or I've been speaking to everybody I know about this book, Birthright Citizenship by Martha Jones, which yes. just came out a few months ago. I think she's a professor. And it really, I think, right. is, yes. yeah, she's a, she's a Johns Hopkins, an historian, but also a lawyer. And she is, it's such a timely book in terms of the history of what it took for African Americans to be seen as rights-bearing subjects. And she reminds us of the history of the 14th Amendment as not simply being about the legacy of slavery coming into citizenship post the Civil War. This was an effort that began in language, in performances of civic responsibility and civic recognition that was begun by freed blacks. They were effectively stateless. <laughs> They were in that gray area of not slaves, but not full citizens, not rights-bearing. And that's why the 14th Amendment came into being, to clarify that terrible category of, of not being subject to due process, of, of not being able to utilize the courts, of not being able to have the franchise, of not being able to have the right of self-defense, of not not being able to witness or testify or sue. <laughs> now that 
it seems to me, is very pertinent to the growing populations of states around the world. But the idea that the United States of America has not only crossed this off the base of the Statue of Liberty in a literal sense, but also now wants to write that of all provisions out of the Constitution, that we render people who are citizens now stateless. The Dominican Republic has done that, and it has been horrendous. It has had horrendous effects on that population and on the population written out of citizenship. There are examples of countries that are doing this, again, at a moment of, I think, the greatest diaspora on the face of the planet, with growing both wars and also climate change diminishment of resources, simply rendering <laughs> huge populations on the planet stateless is almost investing in, well, it's, as we send people to the border, it is investing in, a, in, a, in, in future wars. And what you uh, Literally putting in, in camps. I, I, I am despairing. But, but despairing because the, the kind of the preparation and the work is linguistic. It's kind of legal, but it's also linguistic. There's two different things. There's a legal effort, let's say, the 14th Amendment is a, you know, it's an yeah. amendment, it's a statute, it gives rights, it grants rights. But the other part is to actually start talking about people as as not yes. having those rights. So what you're saying is that what Martha Jones is explaining, that before the 14th Amendment, of course, people were in these positions, used their own subjectivity, humanity, agency to actually present themselves in a way and use language in this way yes. before it was granted to them. But there's two things yes. happening right now. There's a kind of legal effort, let's say, congressional acts, as you say, in other countries or here. Mm -hmm. But then this linguistic fact that what happens to people when they are being described in certain ways, it puts them in a different place. And I think this is really what a lot of what your work is connecting, sort of there's the law and then there's the language that we use, which is maybe the language or not of the law. And this yeah. language has a real impact. <laughs> Hannah Arendt says in The Origins of Totalitarianism, she said, the gravest thing that happened is that so many Jewish citizens, oh, I think we're back, that so many Jewish citizens were declared stateless in the early 30s. And they were just rendered stateless, turned huge groups of people into stateless people who have no more rights anywhere, is a big kind of, yes. so it's a difference between the legal language and then everyday language or pol it's not even political language or people are starting it's not just politicians it's talk shows and newspaper editorials and describing people in these ways yeah yeah I and mean, it worries me because it's not just it's not as easy as being able to point to you shouldn't call people parasites or you shouldn't simply objectify them it's i, I was looking at one of the video i think it was a video released by chelsea manning of an Apache helicopter shooting some civilians and ultimately a journalist from the air. And then one of the helicopter pilots or one of the people in the, in the Apache, when they discover they have actually wounded some children, says, well, it serves them right for bringing children to a firefight. And that sort of, it, it isn't, so it isn't just the objectification. It's not just the commodification or the invisibility of one's victims. It's a transferring entirely of responsibility of you know it, it is an accident it's not negligence it is their fault and it seems to me that that's a habit that is beyond simply the nomination it's also for example when we say there's this phenomenon that law enforcement sometimes uses 
called cop-assisted suicide. Frequently is something that is that, that pops up one hears, and somebody has, has mental health issues. The parents call the police, for example, and the person with some sort of mental illness is waving a knife, and the police officer shoots him dead. This is something which has happened multiple times around the United States. To call that cop-assisted suicide worries me. Even if one finds that there was a valid fear or threat to life, the idea that this is, that the agent of that killing is the mentally disordered person or the person who was shot dead, it redirects our gaze from the uses of state force. Even if it's justified by the police officer, we need to put it in that language. This was necessary under the circumstances, but we have to examine the actual, the behavior, the agency of the one who fired the gun and not simply say that police or state force was an instrument of the deceased. And I do worry that that transfer of agency is something one hears more and more in the discussion of the treatment and the, and the, the inhuman treatment just of the detained children in, in tents in the Arizona desert or the description of the caravan. If you bring children to a firefight, you know, you get what you deserve. It's not our fault how we treat them. And that is a discarding of due process, due persons. The 14th Amendment is not just about citizens, it's also about persons. And in some ways what you're saying is that what is being created is a kind of idea of agency, privacy, that is removed from the state or the other relations that exist here. So saying this idea of a this idea of a cop assisted suicide, as if there's free agency subjectivity and the state is removed entirely and the person who's shooting is no longer an actor or anything. So you're saying it shifts it to another place and drops out this other consideration. And I think the yeah. example I think you're saying it that children are being asked to sign certain legal documents or sign away their rights and their children, which is a very strange idea that people brought children here. We're now going to arrest these children, lock them up, and then we're going to expect these children to behave as if they had due process. It's a kind of strange distortion of what's really going on. Can you say we something? We the, the other constitutional crime of habeas corpus. I mean, that we are not going to be particularly accountable for their health or welfare. We don't need to provide doctors. We don't need to provide child welfare experts. That this is not, that we owe them no duty of care. And as I think I heard either Ann Coulter or Laura Ingram describe it, you know, and then we can call it the equivalent of a summer camp. This is barbarous. Can you say something else, what you just said about the 14th Amendment? It's also about persons. What do you mean by stressing that part? Because I think that there has been a recent attempt, in, at least from some quarters, to say that the 14th Amendment is only about a grant of citizenship, or that the extensions, that the privileges and immunities or the benefits the, of state restraint, the use of excessive power, is due only to citizens. And it's not. It, the 14th Amendment very specifically says that process is due to persons in, in distinction to citizens in some ways to say to let's say category yes. of people humans so okay yes. yes someone who may not be able to vote or somebody who is I'm trying to think there's categories of people many many people in this country who are not citizens many people from starting with yes. green card holders people being processed people arriving all sorts of people who are not yes. out and you're saying they're not outside of the protection of the law just because they lack this one 
legal dimension that they have a passport or a citizenship papers in that sense, right? Yes, absolutely. And that's, of course, the big debate about what happens to people accused of terrorism that began with the deportation of people to, quote, black sites or to Guantanamo Bay. The question is that if they are on American soil, and that's why they were being removed, they are the recipients or ought to be the recipients of due process, regardless of other forms of identity. This is, you know, not a technical discussion about the 14th Amendment. This is really where the cultural sort of discourse is like, and a lot of, I think, your work as you're trying to sort of point out, has this happened before? Has this country debated these kind of fundamental issues in this way? Or, I mean, I'm sure it has from all sorts of quarters, but now it is being conducted at the highest levels of government. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think more carefully, Carelessly, more wantonly, and with more technological power as well as firepower. And that's what is bewildering and, and very worrisome. But of course, the entire period leading up, I mean, what <laughs> is to some degree the profoundly similar range of issues that, that brought us the Civil War. But it also, these were subjects of discussion that gave rise to the Chinese Exclusion Act. These are items that were debated around the status of Native Americans or continue to be debated around the status of Native Americans. South Asians in the early part of the 20th century were subject to the same debates and and sets of exclusions. Certainly the question of asylum during the time of World War II, the the, the ships that came and then were turned away. Many people had raised, raised some of the same issues we are debating today. Right. Um, and, and this kind of nativist impulse, which is, I was struck, um, and I'm, as you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm, I'm not trained in constitutional law, but I, I saw that this past summer the court finally overturned the Korematsu decision in a case that didn't really seem related to internment of Japanese Americans. But And then I asked a couple of people, and someone pointed out to me, they said, this was the last time the court is likely to do something like this for a long time. So they put it in this summer before... We have new nominees on the court. We now have new nominees. So in some ways, does this, in a general sense, when you're teaching law school, does this concern you that our courts may not look out actually to sort of uphold these fundamental obligations that the state would have toward not just citizens, toward all, toward, but toward all persons? And I have this discussion with many people. And as a non-lawyer, you're just sort of picking up the general sentiment of the public of what is our trust and our faith in the law? executed by judges and the courts. Do you feel that is sort of in your law schools, in your classes, and with talking with students, that they're shifting, or are they just becoming lawyers, trusting the law, sort of thinking we're going to use it for good? No, no, no. I think it's quite an urgent, urgent moment. I mean, it's a tremendously, potentially transformative moment in our jurisprudence, in our law, and certainly for the Constitution. And one of the great senses of worry I have about the new nominee is that he wasn't just, you know, one of the many from the Federalist Society who was up for nomination. This is a man who actually expressed an, a belief that the president cannot be the subject of, or held accountable for misdeeds, that he can't be prosecuted. And I think that given this new overreach, as expressed in his thought, that you can, you know, can undo the 14th Amendment with an executive pen, who knows what's coming down the pike? And I, I do worry about how the Supreme Court will be able to ensure that not just, you know, there is a move, a, quite a move, and quite a number of members of Congress, from Steve King 
to Rand Paul, I believe Grassley as well, want to revoke the 14th Amendment. So if it came, so this, I don't... <laughs> I'm actually yeah, I, stunned listening to you hear this. I actually think this is seriously being debated on the floor of... So politicians are really entertaining this idea. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And that's why I don't think it's been taken seriously. It's always, oh, it's so fringe. I don't, I'm not convinced that Trump actually believes he can do it with an executive pen. But I think that he is priming the pump for what is a much more difficult project, which is the Constitutional Convention, that a significant number, an increasing number of Republicans have been calling for in their home states. And again, I think it's gone under the radar, but it has been, you know, for anybody who's actually listening to Fox News or listening to certain kinds of news, Breitbart or so forth, this is and has been quite a topic. And again, the 14th Amendment is not just about citizenship. It is also the entire linchpin of the entire civil rights movement. And the civil rights movement in terms of benefits, not just to African Americans, not just to non-whites or persons of all sorts, it is, it is the linchpin of the women's movement, of LGBTQ movement, of labor laws, of the entire New Deal. And it's, yeah. it's the equality guarantee, which, I mean, I'm, you know, as a proud American citizen, but I'm a naturalized citizen. So I've, I've had a lot of conversations with your colleagues, constitutional scholars, and I said, well, for an, a non-legal person, the equality principle seems to be prior to everything. All men are created equal, with the caveat that this meant landowning white men at that point. But let's say we can, you know, let's say there's some possibility to extend this. And then the other freedoms that's come... The 14th Amendment extended it that's, too. That's, that's it right. And, and that makes it real and truly powerful. You would think so that realizes America's, or like makes America's promise something to get to be realized. And as you said, then a hundred years of fights for equal rights, over a hundred years, really sort of make America what it is meant to be. And then you have this tendency to roll this back to where? To what would this country become if the 14th Amendment is actually changed or repealed? What are they trying to do, do you think? that? How would that play out? I, 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 I don't quite know. Oh, I don't like to imagine where this plays out. But when I listen to the same people who do want to repeal it, someone like Steve King, I think it can't be understated the degree to which these are also the same people who have connections to the ultra-far right throughout Europe and Eastern Europe. So when Steve King poses with Thierry Wilders, I listen and <laughs> listen to what Wilders is saying. When Donald Trump and CPAC welcome Marine Le Pen, to Washington, D.C., I listen to what they're saying. And a great deal of what they're saying is to transform, that use sanguinous, you know, sort of blood and soil <laughs> is a notion of citizenship that we have, you know, we've seen the, 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 the misuses of that. And, and I worry it's being mouthed by people who, like Steve King, say we cannot have a civilization with other people's children. That within the United States, has its own long, ugly history that many of us would like to forget, not just rooted in slavery, not just rooted in Jim Crow, but also in the American eugenics movement. And the American eugenics movement produced a set of laws that go by other names like the social hygiene movement. And the social hygiene movement, those laws were the ones that the National Socialist Party adopted in Germany to extirpate the internal enemy, the internal contamination of 
Jewish Roma communist bodies back in the 30s. And that notion that we are now deploying this vocabulary of internal incorrigible bodies whose, whose citizenship we must clean ourselves of. I mean, this, this is very reminiscent of the social hygiene movement that began in the United States. And for those who are unfamiliar with that history, go to eugenics.org. The records of the American eugenics movement are online in Cold Spring Harbor, where it began. Yeah, we actually did NYU with one of my colleagues and friends, Jack Chen, who's going to be on the podcast. He did a show to exhibit, actually, the planning office. He recreated that office, which was a very eerie and haunting place. It was terrible. He actually bought a lot of the file cabinets and the bureaucratic means by which people were determined not really worthy yes. of living or procreation. So it's the 1920s. You have these laws applied. They are racial categories usually or categories of health and illness. And as you're saying, so this this movement was and poverty and, yeah, and, disability and, and conducted by highly accredited white men, doctors, university presidents, yeah. lawyers. So in some ways it was authorized by the entire establishment. You've written a lot about this thing. What happens then is then the state sort of pretends to do something on behalf of people, but it's turned around... I wanted to go back to one point about the 14th Amendment, and if you can help me there. There's mm -hmm. two anxieties, it seems. There is kind of the willful amnesia in America about slavery and about the role of African Americans. There's this kind of 14th Amendment. And then there's the other one about this other amazing capacity of Americans to pretend that they are the real Americans and everybody else who comes is an immigrant with as we know, these are not Native Americans or communities mm -hmm. of Native communities saying that. So these two different strands of the kind of anti-black racism that's linked to slavery. And the other one is this kind of nativist that immigrants are bad, which seem to be sort of conflated. Or that's, But in your work, you sort of tease out these things that there's a kind of lasting amnesia and anxiety about intermixing or this kind of denial. That's one thing. That's kind of the anti-black racism. And the other one is anti-immigrant sentiment. If you could sort of help me, I'm really sort of honestly asking this question of how do you tease these apart? They're sort of commingled now. I mean, the, this talk show pundits that you used, you, you refer to, they just make it all into one thing. But there's a kind of anxiety in America around this still, 150 years later. You know, I think that's why it's easily recognizable as a prejudice about color and a global sense about the global South coming into the global North and civilization existing and what from or emanating from Western Europe. And that's why Melania isn't the object of this. But, you know, but, oh, right. Yes. yes. <laughs> but, but Obama is. And, <laughs> and, and so color is one delineator. But I think that the long history of that, again, the American eugenics movement felt is the imperfection of bodies. This insistence upon a certain kind of perfection and that I think is reiterated to some degree in our reproductive practices right now, particularly when it comes to the desire to have perfect babies or designer babies. And, you know, that's a whole other topic, but it's something I'm very concerned about because I think there's some unconscious, perhaps unintentional reiterations of a kind of eugenic desire in that. You see that also in our adoption market. You want to adopt certain babies, but not others. It's a very Steve King-ish kind of thing we are enacting, even as many people would disagree with that. I also think that the rise in anti-Semitism, a lot of people said, well, it's about money and it's about power, but I think the shape of it is 
the practice of it is kind of like what President Obama faced and what that there are two kinds of racism. One is against who are poor and dark and servos, you know, figurative servants. But the other is a kind of racism and prejudice that is characterized by anti-Semitism, but not limited to anti-Semitism, which is that you're too powerful, you're too big for your britches, <laughs> you're out of place in the sight of power. And, you know, that gave rise to the Tulsa riots or to people who have forgotten that many of the people who were actually lynched were wealthier African-Americans, right. not really the poorest all the time. And that dispossession from power goes hand in hand with also the crushing of the small people underfoot. And that's the insidious thing that I see happening right now. The Jews have been marked historically and Muslims, that the broad sense of, I don't mean to conflate all Semitic peoples, but it does seem to me that the way in which their bodies are mocked and cartooned overlap in terms of a history that goes back to medieval times. Right. And I'm shocked to see the degree to which that is re-emerging <laughs> against both sets of peoples in this context. I think some part of this, the Trump presidency, what he exploits is this kind of lingering resentment against political correctness. And he has this kind of capacity to pretend he's exploding taboos. And people have this strange sense of relief, like finally someone says something that we couldn't say, which I have seen a lot and you've seen a lot because the universities are constantly attacked and kind of, I think, actually just set up in a dumb way for being politically correct. And then finally someone can speak the truth. So is it revealing a truth about America or is it actually, it's always been there clearly as you show Oh yeah, I think it's always Right. So it's always been there. And I think there's always been an hypocrisy about the First Amendment. This is supposedly about the First Amendment. And, you know, I can't speak except in the multiple, multiple you know, pages of, you know, Fox News and right. the New York Post and so forth. Um, we are all speaking. The issue is not political expression among people at large, or it hasn't been in many of the culture wars, and particularly on campuses. That's not what's at issue. I mean, it's, it's who has who gets more purchase from that. And private universities can tell and contracts, employers can tell there's, you know, they're, you know, you can contract away your right to say anything and everything. You know, we don't let people reveal trade secrets, for example. So a lot of this, you know, universities can, you know, are self-governing depending upon, you know, conduct codes. That's not the First Amendment. What really worries me right now is that the First Amendment really is this censorship, is, which is such a term that gets misused in all of these debates. Censorship is about the state acting to silence you. And for all of this bloviating about, you know, First Amendment being silencing people from calling you ethnic names or slurs, you, you actually have a president who wants to, who said that he wants to deprive the citizenship of Colin Kaepernick. He says he thinks that he should be tried for treason and have his citizenship taken away. He wants to, he's urged publicly that football players be fired from their jobs. That is censorship. <laughs> and because that comes from the position of the state. So that is actually yes, the government yes. directly calling on Jamel Hill, who was a commentator on ESPN, and said that she should yes. be fired. Just direct interference. We don't see a lot of... Yes, that is censorship. I mean, that's, it's not just injudicious, bad behavior or inciting behavior. This is worse than, in some ways, I mean, it's the equivalent of McCarthy. I mean, people say it's McCarthy-like. This is the chief executive 
saying this, and that didn't even happen during McCarthy either. And what do you? Um, why do you think people have? I think it's been a little slow that people have picked up on this fact that the First Amendment is being used and distorted. And uh, I mean, we. I think we really lived through a year and a half of the media generally concocting one story that. Kids cannot say what they want on campuses. There's sort of groupthink and these poor and conservative students who Putin's Carter, who I talked to at Berkeley, said they are in their feeling. They do feel they don't have a space to talk. But she said that it's not an equivalent with being oppressed for other reasons. But why did this happen? And why did the country take so long to wake up to this to say we have a president who's going after the press, telling people should be jailed for what they say or fired from their jobs? And that hasn't generated the outrage, but instead you get these you know, spectacles on campus and they generate the country being upset for weeks. Yeah, again, I do think that some of this, as you say, is, is a setup. You know, I mean, I think that Milo Yiannopoulos is great at performing and taunting. I mean, there's a kind of taunting that goes on that, you know, I think that perhaps everyone, including the press, is too, you know, is too much to suffer for. But I also think there's just a general disposition, you know, it's, there's history in a willingness to grant certain kinds of people the benefit of the doubt or to say, oh, you're just joking, and certain others, you know, you're being impertinent, insolent, and even dangerous. There's something haunting about this as being, you know, Colin Kaepernick is, the, <laughs> is revolutionary and dangerous. And this is just, you know, to, to make a prayerful gesture like going down on one's knee is, is a danger. But And I think actually this is, the, Colin Kaepernick is, in, first of all, he's an amazing person, courageous, yeah, yeah. full of dignity and kind of really strength. And then I think the good thing is that he's able to persist and maybe actually shift this narrative. I think there was kind of a first round in this and Trump was quite effective and, you know, mislabeling this entire affair into its anti-American and And I think we've come around to maybe people saying, mm, maybe it's not quite so simple. So I do have some hope that maybe also the younger generation, because I deal with, as you do with a lot of students, I think they see this and they, the people I know, they don't think Colin Kaepernick is anti-American. They say, well, he has a right to express himself and he should not be punished for that. So I wonder whether there's some hope that... <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I hope so. I sometimes, maybe it's being in a law school, you know, it's a little bit more conservative of an environment or when I go around, but not necessarily, you know, that it has been rather successfully conflated with disrespect to the military or disrespect to police officers. No matter how specific and carefully Kaepernick and other football players have said this is about excessive force, not all law enforcement. It's about particular instances and it's about training. It's about, it is accompanied by respect for the people who put their lives on the line to protect us. That does not seem to have stuck in many parts of the country. That's why, you know, I cling to your hope, but <laughs> I do think there's something hypnotic about Trump's framing of some of these issues for um, many people. A big challenge is disregard for how he's perceived, that he can be outrageous mm -hmm. and he doesn't care. I think that stumps the press every turn. They keep on thinking he's going to be either embarrassed or retract something or correct something, and he doesn't, doesn't care at all. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of his yeah. arrogance or his indifference to this these kinds of protocols that keep the press kind of flailing a bit and saying, oh, we're just going to repeat it, and then be amazed what he just said and then he says the next thing and then they keep on being amazed so in some ways there's a 
But I do think, I'm not optimistic by any means, but I do think there's a kind of a bit of an awakening that at least people on social media are much more active pushing back that I think, let's say liberals have kind of woken up to the power of social media. I think the conservatives were a bit quicker to pick that up. And yeah, there's yeah, some yeah, counter yeah, counter yeah. conversation happening. Yeah. I do think you're absolutely right about many self-identified liberals at any rate are finally beginning to say, Oh, this is more serious. He is not just a joker. You know, that this is, and taking it seriously, I think, is part of becoming more politically engaged with the reality of what he's suggesting. What do you say to your law students right now? So they're studying the law, they're being trained really to actually apply the law in the best possible conscientious way. But they must come in also and be a bit skeptical and say, is the law always an instrument of justice and furthering equality and advancing the ideals of this country? Or... A lot of your, what your work has been about, say, like the law can, of course, be used in other ways as well. Just like we saw freedom of speech being weaponized in certain ways. To, I mean, you talked about mm. campaign finance, I think, well, 30 years ago, and then we have, you know, the. Well, I do a lot of that in my column, actually. I mean, yes. when I'm in law, I'm actually not a constitution. I don't I, teach constitutional law, and so this is not always that you know you it certainly comes up in conversations. This is not actually what I teach. So I'm playing in your in your office hours, in your in your outside of your seminar. What do you? How do you sort of, in terms of a general sort of attitude towards the law that you impart to your students? I don't mean in your contract courses, but sort of when they come in. Yeah. yeah. How much faith ought we to have that the law will be a force for the good? Well, I think my students are. I mean, and law students generally are incredibly. You know, they have ambitions for this profession of theirs or for their future profession. And I am very proud of many, you know, the student body with whom I deal at Columbia are just, you know, they have gone out to, you know, for clinical work to help undocumented people to work on briefs and all kinds of human rights and social justice and environmental justice. I mean, they're a great crew. I mean, Columbia has students in all walks of, of the profession from corporate to to this, but I must say that you know when the very first so-called Muslim ban came about, they rose up to offer their services to think this through. Their thoughtfulness is a source of great hope. That they're thoughtfulness about what the law really means, what it can do, what the role of the courts is, you know, what is the power of the executive in relationship to what the legislature does to confine the capacities of lawyers. I think we're all. What I do hear my law students talking about right now is that sort of off-the-cuff remark that our president made recently of lawyers getting in the way. We've got to hurry up the punishment. As despicable as the acts of terror have been of the last week or so, the idea that we've got to hurry up and rush people into the death chain toward execution is not a lawyerly stance, let's put it that way. And I think that <laughs> that kind of abandon of due process, that kind of off-the-cuff recommendation from the commander-in-chief is worrisome to many students, to many lawyers, to many citizens. And they're mm -hmm. responding, as you're saying. They're thinking about their role. I think so. Yeah. If you were to say, I'm yeah. going to ask you two yeah. questions I ask a lot of people. How do you deal with the daily news? How much of it do you absorb? How much do you follow it? I mean, I know you have a way of processing by writing. Pull over. <laughs> Sorry, say this again? I said, I have a favorite pillow I put over my head. <laughs> no, I actually, I read five or six newspapers at least every day. And, you know, many people say that they have to turn it off or that they're addicted 
I, I think that there is a greater responsibility to which we have to rise right now, and that is to be aware. And one of the things that I think is most troubling about this moment is that so much is happening so fast, so many things are being eroded. You really do have to put in the extra work, and that's, I think, the requirement of civic engagement. One must know what one's talking about. One must be aware of what, what is under threat. So I devote time every day to trying to read what I, what I hear you saying is kind of a civic obligation. And to, while it's overwhelming and we're being yes. manipulated, to opt out is also an application of responsibility. Yes. Maybe also for people who can, do not have the time to follow the news and respond in some ways. I think to, for people to say, I can't deal with it, may still be a position yeah. of privilege and luxury to say, I can't deal with it means I don't want to deal with it. And other people are already dealing with it. Yeah, it will deal with you sooner or later. And yeah, you better see what you know, what some are dealing with already. And I must say that I am to some degree sympathetic with those who only get their news through television. Because it can be so repetitive and can be so relentless and it can, it can grind you down. And that's why I think that you know it's it's fine to watch television, there's but you need to curate. <laughs> your sources of news. And I do mix up a little television with a little radio. But I think, for me, I'm still a reader. And so online, you can get broadsheets, traditional broadsheets, also to really read those which still have codes of ethics. You know, the president can call fake news all he likes, but there are fact checkers for certain news outlets. And I try to be particularly aware of those and read those journals and newspapers, those magazines that, that have fact checkers. At the same time, I also try to listen to a little bit of Fox News or read it at any rate, or I, re I drop in on Breitbart from time to time. I drop in on some fairly you know, right-wing organizations just to also hear what it is that they're saying, and I try to fact check that as well. It seems important to not be taken off guard, not to cut oneself off from those voices, no matter how powerfully I worry about that and disagree. You mentioned two or three books, so the one is Prisoner with No Name, Cell with No Number. Give me the author's name again, and I'll put it also on the website. Jacobo Timmerman. It's written in the 80s. Yes. J-A-C-O-B-O Timmerman, T-I-M-E-R-M-A-N. And he was an Argentinian journalist who was jailed under the junta and wrote about his experience, but he was jailed for his journalism in terms that might seem all too familiar right now. So we should look at that. You said Animal Farm by George Orwell, and then also yes. Martha Jones, more recent book, uh, Right Citizenship, which I'm hoping yeah, to have right her on the So I'm going to put those in as a references, and then people should also obviously check out your monthly column in The Nation, which I have to say that the one thing is you've made me laugh. A lot of times, in spite of the topics that you're dealing with, which are usually not funny or they're very, very serious, but you have a way of actually bringing in a certain kind of, let's say, constructive irony, which is... Oh, thank you. To go back to the, be to the beginning of our conversation, when I was very lucky, I studied with Barbara Johnson, and she was, you know, obviously, as a teacher of literature, she was really interested in irony and the double meaning that language can yes. carry. And yes. she had this kind yes. of dry wit to sort of say things that kind of left you sort of left me usually thinking a little too long until I got the joke because she was very, very smart. But there was a way in which to sort of... Very dry, very dry, very subtle, and, right. but brilliant. She's lovely, really a brilliant teacher. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, so, I, 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 yeah I, was, I clearly, clearly tried to take that lesson from her as well.
Yeah, but, so, <laughs> but you succeed. So I want to just thank you for the conversation. And I do want to also recommend to listeners, many of them are a different generation, the alchemy of race and rights remains incredibly relevant. So I think people should look at that. They should also look at the rooster's egg because I love all the essays in it. I like the, the whole essay, the title essay actually quite a lot. So people who don't know what the rooster's egg is can look it up and they can learn from you what that Jamaican fable, which Zohar Neil Hurston brought out, is. But I, I will put all the links on the website. And I want to genuinely thank you for the work you're doing, that oh. actually this is rare and it's really important to speak to a general public about these issues that get so easily confusing for people who are not legal experts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're difficult to walk through, but also to see what are the repercussions of using language in certain ways and what happens, what kind of possibilities are opened or foreclosed by different uses of language. Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, so, thank much. you so much for having me. Okay, thanks for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> You're so welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> thank you.